0: I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent GREEN IS PEOPLE! No, I am the father. Oh. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up!
1: Damn
0: you all to hell!
1: Hello and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special podcast. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and today I am joined by Slate writer, longtime Slate Spoiler Special guest, Dan Coyce. Hello, Dan.
0: Hey, Dana. Glad to be back.
1: And the movie we're spoiling today, which really has needed spoiling so badly and just needed a lot of post-movie discussion since I saw it back in September, is Tar, starring Kate Blanchett. Blanchett plays a world-class orchestra conductor named Lydia Tar. But before we start breaking down Tar, I need to just ask you, first of all, Dan, I always like to go around at the beginning of a spoiler and just ask, yes or no, is this this a great movie? Is it an okay movie? Is it going to be one of your favorite movies of 2022, as is the case for me?
0: I uh, really liked Tar a lot. I found it very compelling, very enjoyable, and somewhat bewildering when I watched it. And I found it extremely fun to argue about.
1: Yeah, I think this is certainly the discussion movie of the year. And in fact, I have a friend, a very good friend who really didn't like it. And I still don't know why. And we have a standing date to sit down and talk about what she intensely disliked about Tar. So I should disclose that I intensely did like it. And part of what I loved about it is that I feel like this is a movie that, is truly mysterious and that really is about the mystery of human character and human behavior so that it isn't just mysterious and that it's withholding information from the audience and then, then disclosing it strategically to manipulate us. It is actually letting a lot of those mysteries and ambiguities stand. And so much so, in fact, that you have a sort of fan theory about Tar, which we will get into later in this podcast. Tar is a movie that seduces the viewer in much the way that Lydia Tar, its main character, seduces her listener in this opening scene that I want to take on first of all, Dan. This isn't the very first scene of the movie. Before it, there is a brief glimpse of our main character, Lydia Tarr, sleeping on an airplane under a sleep mask, presumably going to her newest event, which is the first 20 minutes of the movie, is this interview that... Lydia Tarr, the character, has with a real person, Adam Gopnik, the New Yorker critic and writer, at what appears to be the New Yorker festival ideas. So the two of them are on stage having this conversation in a very leisurely real-time manner. You really do feel as an audience member as if you are at the festival, observing it. And this scene gets a lot done. Of course, it's expository in nature because Gobnik runs down the biography of the figure he's interviewing, which gives us a sense of who Lydia Tar is. But it is also a very intense immersion in the presence, at least the public presence, of this character, Lydia Tar. So I want to know, first of all, how this scene struck you as a way to kick off the movie, just 20 minutes of flat-out onstage interviewing of our heroine.
0: I found it very funny, uh, and maybe the kind of scene that could never work in the pre-podcast era. But I, as an audience member, was maybe more ready to accept this than I would otherwise have been because it, it was just like the first 20 minutes of a podcast about Lydia Tarr, the way I would frequently encounter a person like this in my real life. As you say, it gives us a lot of information. I don't know that I would say it seduces us so much as it overwhelms us with the many accomplishments of this fictional character. And it's one of the fun things that the movie does to do its best to ground this fictional character in the very specific details of her world. This heightened world of high art that is also just a little bit popular of money and class and erudition. And I think it's this 20-minute opening that is one of the reasons why people have responded so strongly to this movie and to Lydia Tarr as a character. It is fun to think about this person on stage at the New Yorker Festival with Adam Gopnik. It is fun to see her in the way that we often see these kinds of celebrities, often the only way we encounter these celebrities outside of their work. And it's fun to, like, speculate, about, well, how did Lydia Tarr get the EGOT? Uh, What was Lydia Tarr's relationship with Leonard Bernstein really like? And then on top of all that, the scene introduces a bunch of themes into the movie and it sort of functions as Lydia Tarr's I want number if this was a Disney musical, because what she's mostly talking about in this conversation is Mahler's fifth, the fifth symphony of Gustav Mahler, the one of his symphonies she's never recorded, the one that she's about to record in what has been a long awaited capstone to her career.
1: Right, and that's sort of the occasion for her appearing at the festival, along with a book that she's just written that that he's interviewing her about. But I would argue for this first scene, and really the first hour of the movie being fairly seductive. I mean, I guess it's just a question how you feel about this character before you start to find out these things that kind of stain or shadow her character. And she is great company, you know. And this has been uh, adduced as a talking point against the movie that she's overly seductive and appealing and that thus the film and the filmmaker is is stacking the deck in Tar's favor. So that when you find out these accusations against her and start to learn of uh, the the rumors that are being whispered about her You want to take her side. And I wonder if you you felt that at all, if you felt that appeal.
0: There's a great appeal in someone who is so well-spoken and obviously magnificent at her job, especially when that job is making art and caring about art. That is what appeals to me about Lydia Tarr. All that said, it does not take long after that Adam Gopnik scene for her to, for example, Be a real jerk to those Juilliard students in that class or threaten a a child on the playground because the child has been mean to her daughter. So I don't think it takes very long before we start to see the bits of monster that exist inside Lydia Tarr. But I also think those are seductive to a viewer.
1: Yeah, let's get to the Juilliard encounter, because I think the Juilliard encounter is the first moment that you really see the dichotomy of, you know, her being repulsive and attractive at the same time, and also her being an excellent teacher, right? She's not only excellent, I think, at the the musical and the conducting part of her job, but at communicating about music, which is what she's doing to Gopnik on the stage, and what she's doing in this masterclass at Juilliard, which is the next big kind of set piece. There is a scene in between of her having lunch with a character who becomes very important later, as you mentioned, Mark Strong plays him this slightly lesser conductor in the hierarchy, a conductor who's a sort of a wannabe Tar, and who seems to uh, help her run this foundation that the two of them run together, giving scholarships to to younger musicians.
0: Specifically to female conductors.
1: Yes, they have started a um, program called Accordion that gives scholarships and supports female conductors, which early on she is pushing to open up to both sexes, right? there's There's quite a few indications at the beginning that Tar is not interested in being thought of as the first woman to do this and that, the first woman to conduct the Berlin Philharmonic. So that is going to come up again, that is identity, the concept of one's gender identity and and social belonging in this big set piece at Juilliard, which I didn't even notice the first time I saw the movie is all one take. It's one of those not show-offy long takes that doesn't have a whole bunch going on in it that's just a, a quiet camera, but I don't think there's a single cut in that entire Juilliard masterclass scene. So uh, we see her teaching a masterclass, I think in conducting specifically, right, with a bunch of, of music students at Juilliard. And it all leads up to this verbal encounter with one of the students, which begins because the student says he never plays Bach and he's not interested in playing Bach. Do you want to take it from there and talk about what, what goes down between them?
0: It's a scene that is definitely written to push buttons in audience members who've been reading angry New York Times op-eds about cancel culture for the last 2 or 3 years and about young woke college students and how they simply don't understand how the world really works. Like this Juilliard student is essentially a straw man for, you know, young woke students everywhere characters who don't actually really exist so much in a real college environment and who you would probably pretty, be pretty hard pressed to find at say Juilliard, where I just don't think that many students are really actually saying they would never listen to Bach in a million years, but it does allow Lydia Tar to show both her ability, as you say, as a teacher when she makes a really passionate case for Bach and for the great masters, as well as for the new composers who she is famous in her career for championing. But it also shows you her cruelty, because when that doesn't take, she actively chooses to humiliate that kid who's sitting up at the piano on that stage. And he recognizes it and, and calls her a bitch and stalks out of the, the seminar.
1: Yeah, and that's really a moment where you see something that's going to happen on a much bigger scale later on of her sabotaging herself. Because when she sits him down at the piano, remember, and she plays him through that little bit of Bach counterpoint, she gets him on her side. I mean, by the end of that, he's sort of laughing. He's not necessarily saying that he's going to go to the point of starting to work on Bach's music himself, but she has essentially convinced him that this dead white composer is still despite his canonicity is still someone important to engage with right and because she says his music asks questions which is something else that becomes really important later in the movie right what's what answers a question or what shuts down a conversation but it's her that shuts down the interaction at at the Juilliard master class because after she's essentially won him over to her side she has to just turn you know twist the knife one more time and you know get in this couple more digs about his identity humanitarian politics. And, you know, that's when he storms out calling her a fucking bitch. So that's just a very, very striking way to kick off your character study, right, is to make it very clear that this character that we've been kind of dragged into caring about is going to be someone really prickly and really difficult to deal with and um, very self-sabotaging as well.
0: So she returns to Berlin, which is her home. She's a conductor at the Berliner Philharmonic. We meet her partner, Sharon. We meet her daughter, Petra, who looks to be maybe in first or second grade. We meet their incredible apartment one of the finest German apartments I've ever seen on screen. And we meet the people she works with, who include Sharon, who is the first violinist in that ensemble, and the sort of issues that she's dealing with in her orchestra. They need a new cellist, and Lydia sort of finagles it so that a woman who she thought kind of looked sexy manages to get that job. She's considering and eventually decides to get rid of her second-in-command at the orchestra to reassign him and encourage him to move elsewhere. And she also is dealing with her assistant, who is also an aspiring conductor, and who keeps calling Lydia's attention to a problem with another former student named Krista, who seems to not be leaving Lydia alone, who is having problems in her life, um, who maybe is leaving Lydia mystery gifts um, and who Lydia reminds Francesca was, you know, has been a problem all along.
1: Yes, Krista, although we never meet her face to face, we never fully quite see her in the movie. And we'll talk about the, the ways in which she mysteriously and briefly appears, but she will become very important to the second act. But before we get there, there's one more thing I wanted to note about this beginning, just the setup of the characters in the movie. And it's this very striking scene where Tar confronts the bully of her daughter in, in the schoolyard. There's this extraordinary scene where after dropping her daughter off at school in the morning, Tar strides over to the schoolyard bully and confronts her and, uh, And this scene, among other things, struck me because she is speaking German, which Cate Blanchett does just effortlessly in this movie, switches among German, French, and English. And she calls herself the Vater, der Vater, the father of the little girl. So it's another of these strange moments where, you know, there's not any suggestion that she is a trans person or that she, you know, lives in any way as a man. But it reminded me of um, Lady Macbeth saying, unsex me here. (laughs) You know, she wants to unsex herself somehow when it comes to that scene, when she really wants to kind of brandish this threat at this kid in the schoolyard
0: well she understands power and she understands the right ways to deliver it at certain times to get what she wants and she is perfectly unscrupulous about who she will levy that power against including this like eight-year-old kid (laughs)
1: Right. I mean the fact that it must have been confusing, you know, sort of grammatically confusing for the child for this woman to stride over and say I'm her father is obviously part of the the head game that she's playing. But it's just one of those moments in this movie where I mean, at least as far as I was concerned, you can't see what's coming around the corner in terms of character details. It's not really about plot twists in this movie as much as it's just people acting in ways that you didn't think that they could possibly act. And that really starts to happen in act two of the movie, which we will get to after this short break. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. If you enjoy this show, please consider signing up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get an ad-free experience across the network and exclusive content on many shows. And you'll be supporting the work we do here on Spoiler Specials. So please sign up now at slate.com slash spoiler plus to help support our work. All right. So Dan, let's get into the middle of TAR. Or which-
0: as I think of it, when TAR gets weird. So Tar has had these sort of ambient spookiness even through the first part of the movie. There are scenes in which Lydia wakes up in the middle of the night to some sound or is not quite sure what she hears off in the distance. Uh, She's jogging and hears a scream in the woods. Right around the midpoint of this movie, specifically right after we get news that Krista has died by suicide, the movie gains this air of Spookiness, which continues throughout the entire movie and renders it, I think, something other than the seductive portrait of a certain kind of lifestyle and a certain kind of attractive yet repulsive character that it was in the first hour or so. At some point, this movie changes from a kind of objective perspective of Lydia Tarr and her life and times to a subjective perspective that is at least to some extent sunk inside. Lydia Tarr's consciousness. In a way, I think of it as transforming from a cancel culture story to a horror movie. And it all comes to a head in this truly remarkable sequence. Basically, at the midpoint of the movie, Lydia drives her fresh-faced new cellist who she has finagled not only into the orchestra, but into a solo in the piece that's going to accompany Mahler's fifth at that concert. She drives her back to the squalid Berlin building that the cellist is living in as she's just arrived in the country. And then when she realizes that the cellist has forgotten something in the car, she, she calls out to her and follows her into the building. And then she follows the sound of singing into the basement. And Dana, what happens down there in the hole?
1: I don't know. I mean, you're right that the tone starts to shift subtly toward something more like horror, but I'm not sure I can go as far as you can and say that these things aren't really happening. It seems somewhat legitimate that a young cellist from Russia, who presumably doesn't have much money as she's waiting to hear whether she got into the orchestra or not, would live in this squalid, squat-like kind of place where she drops Olga the cellist off. Um, so I guess it seems possible that, you know, in, in wandering around the squalid... Quarters where the cellist is living, she would get lost in the basement. Then there's this violent thwack <laughs> of Lydia Tar running away and falling on the steps. And uh, and if you remember, there's then immediately a cut to this this other thwack, a thwack of a rolling pin at home as she's she's home that same night at the Berlin apartment making dinner.
0: She face plants on her way up the stairs. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. She's 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 putting ice on her face, and then she's just about to get her wounds dressed by by her wife, and so. I know that there is a train of thought, and I'm not sure to how much you you subscribe to this, that everything that happens after her faceplant in the courtyard is a dream or is some sort of fevered imagining of what might be happening. And since I don't see that up on the screen, I mean, I do definitely see a lot of the mysterious and unexplained enigmas (laughs) that you're going to point to, but I don't see on the screen that we have entered some sort of dream realm. And I also honestly just don't understand narratologically what that would mean for the movie because it's actually not the midpoint. I was checking when this happens and it's about 30 to 40 minutes before the end of a two hour and 40 minute movie, right? So it really is the last act kind of. Um, Why would there be a movie that is for two thirds of its length, about cancel culture and power relations in the world of classical music, and is more or less an objective narrative, and then becomes the story of what someone lying in the courtyard, <laughs> imagining a bunch of other stuff. Like, what, are you, what do you imagine is physically happening to Lydia Tarr's body for the rest of the movie, if you think that we have just entered her fevered brain space after she falls in the courtyard?
0: I don't think that it's all a dream, but I do think that Todd field is inviting us to view those last 30 minutes as something other than the objective truth or something in addition to the objective plot beats of what happens to Lydia Tarr, that it's some combination of her real life and her worst fears being enacted on the great screen of her subconscious, which we get to watch. And so if I had to guess, I would guess that we're meant to believe that some version of these things happen or are going to happen, but that we are also given the opportunity to see the effect they have on her and to feel that effect subjectively through a subjective camera and acts of editing and pacing that are meant to create a kind of frenzy in that last half hour. The subjectivity doesn't start there even before this scene in the in the hole something weird is going on that something is haunting her and the you know the person that's haunting her is Krista who just died Krista is in the background in her apartment the movie does not point her out or give us a jump scare but she's there you can see her red hair and all these mysterious sounds and missing objects and screams in the woods and metronomes placed on a shelf in the middle of the night all of this suggests to me that we're being encouraged to to view the acceleration of events in this movie as something that isn't only the set of things that happen to Lydia Tarr as she gets canceled.
1: All those things happened before the news of Krista's suicide, right? So that's what you're saying, is that the seeds are being planted for this journey into the mind of, of Lydia Tarr.
0: Before the news, but I believe we're encouraged to think that they happen after Krista's death. When she gets the news of Krista's suicide, Francesca tells her that it was a couple of days ago. And this is a couple of days after she has left New York and come back to Berlin. And in New York, we saw Krista in the audience at the Adam Gopnik reading. I think we're meant to believe that Krista's in that audience, that she drops that book off, the Vita Sackville West book off, and then kills herself potentially that night. And that everything that follows in the movie happens post-death of Krista. That all those hauntings are in some way enacted by the residual guilt that Lydia feels.
1: That opens up a new ambiguity, especially if there's apparitions of Krista before Tar knows about her suicide, which is that, you know, there's an actual objective supernatural haunting going on, which is certainly not on the surface of the movie, but you almost have to have a a rewind function to see these glimpses of redheads that sometimes lurk in the background of, of interiors. But once you start seeing them, you do start to ask, how realistic is this cosmos that we're moving through as opposed to one that partakes of the supernatural in some way? Let's talk about how, as you write, things start to spiral down really quickly. This movie that has moved very deliberately, you know, at this very luxurious pace and given us lots of time and space to absorb all the sounds and the, you know, the beautiful images, becomes something much more rushed and feverish in the last third and includes some things that, if you are reading it as a purely realist story, don't really make a lot of sense. Like, for example, her beatdown, Lydia Tarr's physical beatdown of the Mark Strong character, who, after this, you know, this uh, the scandal starts to pick up steam, right? There's some montages of tweets circulating about Lydia and Krista. And in the midst of all that happening, she is taken off the um, conducting the Mahler Symphony, right, in, in its first public performance. And behind the scenes, we never see this happen, but Mark Strong's character, Elliot, gets to the job instead. So would you say, according, Dan, to your, your theory of the, you know, the post- head thwack of Tar being a different movie that takes place in a different kind of space that that doesn't really happen.
0: I think this scene is one of the best arguments for at least some of the stuff in the last half hour of the movie, not quote unquote really happening because it is so outrageous and unbelievable. If Lydia Tar truly has lost her position at the Berlin Philharmonica they are not going to let her backstage with her wild hair and her conductor's outfit seconds before the thing is going to begin the trumpeter who is standing right next to her, delivering the initial fanfare from backstage as she, she so cannily set up early in the movie is not going to not even notice. She's there standing right next to him. And the entire orchestra is not going to not notice that she is rushing through it until the moment that she tackles Mark strong on stage. And I loved that moment as like the most shocking, heightened, insane thing that this character could do. But it also reads perfectly in a way as her version of how what her downfall would look like that she may be fucking losing it, but she is going to fight for this thing, uh, you know, the way a man would if someone stole what that person should have.
1: If you're believing that it didn't literally happen, then what did? I mean, did she she simply put up a verbal fight to the idea of being replaced?
0: The flaw in my theory is that I have no idea. I don't have a fucking clue. (laughs)
1: Like you don't have a matrix kind of idea. She's not lying in like a bin of gel, just having her thoughts transmitted to us, right? She has to be doing something.
0: No, no, and that's why this isn't, It isn't a puzzle, exactly. It's like a game. It's that a lot of things that are happening are both real and not real, or both uh, believable and unbelievable. And the interplay between them creates a lot of fun. But if you actually ask me to solve it, to, like, win the movie, I can't do that.
1: I mean, one thing I will say is that whether or not we're meant to think these things are literally happening, we are certainly experiencing them more the way that Lydia would be experiencing them, right? We lose our own objectivity and we get more feverishly caught up in in her point of view.
0: Right, in part because the pace quick picks up so quickly, as you noted, it's happening. So those last... Those like basically like 20 minutes before she ends up in East Asia are like, bam, 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 bam. She like flies back and forth to America in no time at all. And it's remarkable how speedily all that happens leading up to that tackle.
1: So I want to figure out what the ending is all about and what you think it means literally and figuratively. But first, it's time for a word from our sponsor. All right, Dan Koyce, bring us home. We are now in the very last 10 minutes of the movie or so. And this movie that has taken place almost entirely, as I mentioned, in these vast privileged cultured spaces, right? In Juilliard, um, at the New Yorker Festival, at this beautiful, spacious Berlin apartment, suddenly goes somewhere very different and, and unexpected.
0: It goes two places very different. It goes upstate to the podunk hometown of young accordion prodigy who grew up into Lydia Tarr as Lydia briefly returns home where some relative, perhaps a brother, lets her know that they don't think she's such hot shit. And then it goes to Southeast Asia, to an unnamed Southeast Asian country, which appears to be Lydia Tarr's, perhaps in this version of her story, the beginning of her comeback or a a measure of just how far she's fallen. She is called out there to conduct a mystery score that we don't understand. We see her meet the people who have commissioned her to do this conducting job. She admits she's not familiar with this composer at all and she couldn't even find the the score. They just hand it to her. We follow Lydia to a massage parlor uh, which has hints within it of some kind of exploitation. Uh, there are brothel vibes in this massage parlor. Or at the very least, there is a scene in which Lydia is presented with a tableau of women all looking down and told to pick the one she wants to massage her, to pick a number. And she looks out at all of these women, and one of them looks up at her. That woman is, of course, number five. The number of the Mahler's symphony that she will never conduct in this version of her future, whether it's happening in real life, only on a screen, or only in her brain, Uh, the number five will never stop haunting her, sends her straight out in the street to barf.
1: I didn't think of the number five connection, but that's that's great. That's that's brilliant. I mean, I guess my question points towards something bigger. I want to know about the ending, which is just. Do you see the ending only as a cruel joke, or do you see that there is some hint of redemption, at least as a, an orchestra conductor for her? Or maybe not as a human being, but that she at least has somehow gotten back to music. In other words, is she musically humiliated as well, or is she only personally and professionally humiliated?
0: I mean, the movie sure tries to musically humiliate her, because the thing that it turns out she's been hired to conduct is the score to the video game monster hunter at some kind of cosplay convention in which the entire audience is dressed in various costumes from this video game. And that is a real thing that happens as many video game fans will tell you, but it is certainly from the lofty heights at which we met her a steep, steep decline in terms of artistic prestige and aesthetic quality. At the same time, there is something a tiny bit heartening in the fact that Lydia Tar does not fucking blink about this. She gets up on that podium and she conducts that orchestra in front of that audience full of people wearing animal costumes. And she conducts it, as far as we can tell, with the exact same level of seriousness as with which she approached everything else in this movie. So maybe that is a tiny bit of redemption or at least a signifier that when it all comes down to it the music does matter to her more than the people she got to abuse or the people she got to step on or the deaths she got to cause or the private jets she got to fly on
1: I mean, one thing I think you can certainly say about Tar is it's the kind of movie that bears seeing at least twice, even though it's two hours and 40 minutes long. It doesn't feel long. I think this movie is, I mean, the word seductive comes back to mind again. It's just a movie that that draws you into this world that it creates and see it with someone. So you could have this kind of conversation afterwards and see um, see what you think about those feverish last 40 minutes or so. There's much more to say, and maybe we will pursue this over dinner one day. But for now, that is our show. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special. And if you like this show, please rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, of course, if you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil in the future or any other feedback to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer today is Christy Taiwa Macanjula. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of audio at Slate. For Dan Coyce, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.